APIs, you know, by their very nature are designed to be automated and used by machines, which also makes it easy for attackers to kind of automate them and automate attacks and things like that. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pour of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 79 of Coding Over Cocktails. My name is David Brown. Our guest for today is the author of API Security in Action and an experienced security architect. He has more than 20 years experience as a software developer and security professional and has a PhD in computer science. An active member of the OAuth Working Group at the IETF, he has a deep knowledge of internet security protocols and applied cryptography. Cryptography. Until recently, Neil was the security architect for Forgerock, a leading IAM vendor, and now has runs his own training and consultancy business. In his spare time, he plays guitar and cycles, hangs out with his wife and daughter in the UK Cotswolds. Joining us for a round of cocktails today is Neil Madden. Neil, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, it's good to good to be on. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Just before we join, you said you've just into moved into a new premises and you're surrounded by boxes still waiting to be emptied. So nothing worse than moving house. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty stressful. So it was the buying and selling process in the UK is is kind of crazy if you if you don't know it. So you kind of you don't really know you're moving house until like a week before it happens, and then kind of it, chaos ensues. <laughs> So yeah, it was kind of fun time. Well, look, let's jump into the uh, the real topic of conversation, which is uh, security APIs in particular. Let's just start off by discussing what the threats and vulnerabilities that publishers should be aware of uh, with APIs. Right. So um, API is a very broad term, you know, application programming interface, and you know, there's obviously lots of APIs you use locally on your machine to talk to the operating system and to talk to libraries and things like that but the book is really about web apis so uh, apis that are made available remotely over the internet um, using web technologies so specifically mostly uh, restful apis so http apis using json normally and so because they're using web technologies you've obviously got all the kind of most of the vulnerabilities you'd have to worry about for a traditional web application are still relevant. Lots of them, some of them are less relevant. And then you've you've also got things that are more specific to to an API. So um, uh, APIs, you know, by their very nature, are designed to be automated and used by machines, which also makes it easy for attackers to kind of automate them and automate attacks and things like that. Uh, for example, so uh, the OWASP, the um, Open Web Application Security Project, uh, great resource, by the way, if um, people are looking for security stuff, they publish traditionally, you know, a very famous um, web security top 10, which is like the top 10 threats you should worry about for security. And they've also recently now started publishing an API security top 10. So that's a really great resource. And they kind of list these 10 things so you know the top one is something called broken object level authorization which is a really classic um api vulnerability so this is sometimes also called uh insecure direct object references uh, or idor sounds very technical can you give us an up down version yeah so what what it basically is is like imagine you were writing um like your own email server like you know you're going to rival gmail or whatever 
Um, and so you've written an API which allows users to like log in and then check their messages. So you've got a, you know, a slash messages endpoint. Uh, and so Alice logs in and she goes to slash messages slash Alice and she reads her uh, emails and, you know, the API is checking or, you know, is she, is she allowed to access the messages API? And, and yes, she is. So it's, it returns her emails. But if that's all it's checking, then, then what Alice can do is can just change that URL to like slash messages slash Bob or something like that. You know, and obviously often in APIs, these are quite predictable URLs. And if the API is just checking, you know, can she access the messages API and not check, checking whose messages specifically she's trying to access, then she might then get um, sent back Bob's email messages. Um, and this is, this sounds like a really simple thing and an obvious thing, but actually this is, this is, really prevalent in in apis and so um so those kind of things are like you really need to worry about and they, they list a whole bunch of these things um that you have to worry about so so another classic one is is overexposing data in your api um so you know returning sensitive information in apis because you're not really you know your ui is taking that api response and then maybe rendering a subset of it and so nobody's actually testing what the underlying API is returning. And it turns out, you know, it's returning your social security numbers or, you know, credit card details or whatever. And so so there's lots of things like that to, to worry about. Yeah. All right. That sounds like a good resource as well. Um, we'll uh, publish that in the uh, written version of this podcast as well. Run me through the security mechanisms for an API. So, so in the book, I kind of cover... Um, the standard kind of mechanisms that that would be used uh, to protect against like whole classes of threats because you don't want to be kind of going down the path of like reacting to individual security vulnerabilities so you want to make sure you've got these kind of core security mechanisms in place which kind of stop um, uh, broad classes of attacks um, straight away and and there's kind of um uh, five, if I can count here, five main security me- mechanisms. So there's kind of, uh, initially you have some kind of encryption, um, on your connection. So you're using HTTPS, um, uh, and that's kind of protecting data, you know, in transit to and from your API. That's kind of a basic thing that most people would, would have set up now. You then potentially also have encryption on your back end of encrypting data at rest, you know, depending on the environment you're storing it in and and um, your threat model of how worried you are about people accessing that. Um, so you're, you're encrypting on the back end. And then there's kind of like a bunch of stages uh, of security controls that requests go through as they reach your API. So uh, typically there's, there's some kind of rate limiting which is which is just a, a mechanism that just prevents your servers getting overwhelmed, um, and, it, and it's designed to stop um, denial of service attacks, particularly things like distributed denial of service attacks, where people kind of recruit a, a huge botnet of compromised machines and have them all flooding your uh, API with traffic. And so you have just some kind of like uh, rate limiting, which is going to like realize when there's too many requests happening for your service to handle and it's going to start um you know shedding load at that point or or throttling requests which is kind of delaying them until until later um and that is often performed you know at the network layer so you kind of push that out as far to the edge of your infrastructure as possible um so right out to you know, and if you're really worried about DDoS attacks, then you might employ uh, a commercial services company that that provides you know DOS protection. 
but otherwise you're kind of doing some kind of rate limiting at your kind of edge load balancers uh, and then you know at layers within your system so that you're kind of blocking these requests and then beyond that you're then looking at authentication so um, working out who who is is sending this request to your API uh, and that that can that can often be quite different in APIs to how it is in traditional um, web applications and we'll maybe go into that a bit bit later but but you've got this authentication process which kind of like works out who the user is basically that's making the request and then and then through that you've then got um, logging so you have some kind of security or audit log that's recording all the requests to your API so that you can then uh, later work out who who did what on the system um, it's very uh, useful resource particularly after an attack to be able to go back and see oh well you know if an attacker did get in what did they access uh, and things like that and then you have your authorization where you actually make a decision of, of whether this user should be allowed to make this request and this is where you would you would you would fix those broken object level authorization issues we just talked about you know so you, you have some decision process there which is saying you know Who's making this request? What are they trying to access? Should they have access to that? Um, you know, and potentially other things, you know, some APIs, you know, might might have, you know, on-call shift rotors. And so certain users can only access the API at certain times a day and, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of like your your main kind of stages. So you've got encryption of data to protect it. You've got uh, the rate limiting, authentication, logging, and authorization. And those are the kind of main mechanisms to to get right. Got it. In your book, you also mentioned that security flaws uh, often occur when an attacker can submit inputs that violate your assumptions about how your code should operate. Um, can you give me an example of that? Yeah. Um, so, well, we've already discussed one with these uh, insecure direct object references. Um, so in that, in that case, the mm-hmm. the API is kind of assuming that if you're accessing the messaging API and you're um, you know, you're allowed to access the message API um, that you must be accessing your own messages because, you know, maybe the UI only generates links to your own messages, right? So um, nobody's going to go and fiddle with the uh, uh, with the uh, URL or whatever. Um, so that's a kind of very basic assumption. But there's also, you know, other things that can occur. So uh, there's things like... Um, so there's there's a class of like uh, denial of service attacks which are which caused memory exhaustion attacks so um some apis which take like binary format messages the message comes in and it has like a length field which tells you how long it is and then the actual message itself uh and if you don't you know validate that length field uh you know that might be like a 32-bit length field or whatever and if you just blindly allocate a buffer that size to hold the message you know they can just send you like the maximum possible value and your your api is now allocating like two or four gigabytes of of memory blocks for each message that comes in and it means they can just send a few messages and and totally take down your api so again there's an assumption there that you're making that that people will only the, the, the length will be correct and will match the message whereas it won't and in fact that was that was a it was a classic security vulnerability heartbleed um, years ago in in SSL, uh, which had kind of pretty much exactly this vulnerability where um, there was this little used part of the SSL spec, which was an echo thing. So you could send it a message and it would send you back um, 
the same message back to you as a kind of heartbeat thing to check whether the server was up and hardly anyone used it and it had exactly this vulnerability that you could just say well yeah this this tiny message is actually you know two gigabytes long um uh, and because this was written in c which is a not a memory safe language what actually happened then was it was it it assumed the message it got in memory was two gigabytes long when it was only tiny. And so it would take a whole chunk of the server's memory and then send that back to the client. And that, that memory was like the private memory of the server and contained like private keys and passwords and all kinds of stuff like that. So that was, that was a terrible vulnerability. So again, it was just an assumption made by a developer at the time that, you know, the length is going to match, you know, why wouldn't the length match? Um, And so it's kind of like, um, and a lot of attacks were, you know, go on very subtle um, uh, differences in the assumptions that the developer made when they wrote the API compared to how an attacker actually abuses it. I mean, your your uh, book ca- has amazing resources when you're developing APIs to look at ways of securing them and, and, and considerations taken into account in the design. Uh, of course, a lot of companies are already published an API. Are there any frameworks or tool sets that can assist them with the identification of threats? Yeah, so there are there are various things. Uh, yeah, so there's things like um, I struggle to think of names now, but there's um, first of all you need to you need to kind of understand what APIs you actually have, which is a a common um, problem that companies have that it's quite easy often to just deploy an API. And so you end up, particularly in the early stages of a company, you know, with lots of APIs and you don't necessarily know what they are, who's responsible for them, uh, even where they are. So you you have tools which can kind of scan your your public kind of cloud offerings and your um, known IP address ranges and things like that. And they can discover APIs and inventory them um, so that you can then start, you know, tracking down who owns this thing, what security controls are already in place place for it and things like that um there are then things like you there's various kind of um appliances you can kind of put in front of your apis which will kind of block various attacks so there's there's things like web application firewalls and things like this which sometimes now built into um things like api gateways um where they have kind of rules that will detect various kind of common kind of attacks uh, and sometimes they they can kind of like feed in kind of uh, information f- about, about new attacks as well that, that are ongoing, so you can kind of keep them up to date. Okay, uh, and um, let's talk about the uh, secure development. So when you're creating APIs from the outset, uh, what coding practices can a developer uh, use to avoid incorporating security vulnerabilities? Uh, I mean, this is this is a huge area. Um, there's, you know, many possible things, and people have written a lot on kind of secure development. But there is some some kind of basic things to to kind of um, look over, and I kind of go in in uh, in the book over some basic kind of secure development principles. So things like, you know, if you're if you're coding your API in a memory unsafe language like C or C plus plus, then there's a lot more things you have to worry about. Um, so you know, ideally, if you can you know, use a memory safe language like like Java or Rust or um, you know, Go or, or something like that. Uh, but if you if you have to use C or C for whatever reason, then then um, there's a there's a bunch of things you need to do to kind of make sure you're not having those kind of heartbleed style vulnerabilities where you're getting buffer overruns and, and things like that. Um, and there's a bunch of nice tools now that you can run. So um 
uh, Clang, which is kind of the C compiler, has a bunch of tools in it, these kind of sanitizers you can run, which will tell you they kind of instrument your code when it's compiled and then they detect certain conditions that are risky and will kind of tell you um, so they'll detect things like buffer overflows and uh, undefined behavior so that's things you're doing in your code that are um, uh, sort of compiler specific how they how they're going to behave uh, and might change on different platforms and things so then beyond that kind of basic kind of getting the memory safety right there's, there's then um, a bunch of things and there's kind of like categories so so one of the most dangerous things you can do um in in security is parse anything basically um so many security vulnerabilities are, are, are around parsing uh which kind of feels weird because parsing is kind of one of those areas of computer science that feels like it's like the most studied and kind of like there's this really good kind of theory behind it um, but actually, in practice, um, it's it's really risky because um, often um, different different parsers will parse things slightly differently, which can lead to to vulnerabilities. So, um, as an example of that, there's things which are request smuggling vulnerabilities, where you have a request comes in and it's not just going straight to your API server; it's going to some kind of gateway or reverse reverse proxy like an api gateway that's doing some kind of like access control checks first and then it's going to forward it onto your api if it passes those uh, but if those your back-end server and this gateway if they parse that http request differently um this is this is quite a common vulnerability then an attacker can um submit a request which to the gateway looks innocuous and, and passes the checks but then on the back end it gets Pars is a completely different type of request and causes something completely different to happen. So that's called request smuggling and is got um, a got a serious vulnerability. So so the kind of the main solution to that is try and keep it simple and make your your data formats and things as simple as you possibly can. Uh, even JSON, which is quite simple, is actually people have done some work looking at the differences between JSON parsers and finding that like basically no two JSON parsers in in the world parse json exactly the same way when you get down to like looking at all these edge cases so there's kind of input validation and you've got to make sure then that that people aren't sending malicious things to your api you've then got um things like injection attacks so when you're saving your data into the database making sure um, that you're not just concatenating strings together to form the sql statements that you're uh, running to insert things because then otherwise or, or even to query things because then otherwise um the 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 attacker then can put specially crafted strings you know um you've probably seen the xkcd uh little bobby tables um cartoon if you haven't you know google that where where you know somebody's got their user their name they've named their child such that it's got like sql syntax in it and you know it drops the whole database when you load their that child's name into the database um and so there's things like that and so you have to kind of use there's different ways you protect against that so for databases particularly you use something called prepared statements where um uh, rather than just concatenating strings, you kind of have a SQL statement with just placeholders in it, and then you supply the input separately. And then the database knows, well, that's user input and that's the, the code. And so it can't get confused about the two. There's also, you know, injection into HTML, which causes cross-site scripting and stuff. And there's different ways you do that. So normally there's some kind of escaping you have to do to kind of protect values. Yeah, so th those are the kind of things... Um, 
you have to look out for. Um, I'm just trying to think what else I cover in, in the book around that. But There's yeah. a lot. I, I've, I've looked at the book and you cover a lot in this space. It's uh, incredibly comprehensive and an and, and easy read as well. I, I highly recommend it. Um, let's move on to uh, authentication. We, we, you, we di- you did start talking about uh, some of the security mechanisms and you, we touched on authentication and authorization, which we're going to talk about as well. So uh, you say that token-based authentication is the dominant approach to protecting APIs. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of token-based authentication? Right. So to- token-based authentication is is basically, so people sometimes have different different definitions of, of what it is. Um, but, but for the purposes of the book and how I interpret it is, is that you, you log in and you get some kind of token, which is a string, a random looking string that you then send on subsequent requests to uh, to the API and that authenticates you. So that string is somehow connected to your account. Um, so typically it might just be by via an entry in a database. So this random string maps to, you know, something which says, you know, who your account is. It might, you know, link to billing information and things like that. If your uh, account is, is commercial, your API is commercial. Uh, and some of the advantages of that is obviously then you're not sending user passwords or other credentials on all your API calls, which is particularly important. You know, if you have a lot of APIs and a lot of people developing them, you know, not all of your developers are going to be, you know, security uh, people. And so they, they they might not know how the best ways to handle passwords and things like that are. Uh, and so so this token, which is typically relatively short-lived uh, compared to a password, um, th- there's less risk then of, of it being leaked somewhere. You know, if, if, the, if the API is logging that information to its logs and it's actually logging these tokens and they're ending up you know, in some centralized log store. Uh, it doesn't matter so much if that token is only valid for like 15 minutes or something or a couple of hours uh, compared to if it's somebody's password, which they probably reused on their bank account as well and, and things like that. So that's kind of one of the main, main advantages. Uh, there's also kind of other, on the other extreme, there's kind of more secure um, approaches to authentication. So there's things like you can use certificate authentication at the, the TLS layer, but that's often really complicated to set up. So, so token-based authentication is kind of hitting this sweet spot where it's kind of quite easy to, to set up and get going uh, and adds quite a lot of security benefit early on. Uh, and it, it avoids a lot of this complexity. And then recently there's been kind of work on um, like improving the security of token-based authentication. So you can later on, you can add uh, additional security, things like certificate authentication on top and kind of tie them together in a way as a kind of optional thing that you add on when you want to harden your systems later. So what the certificate uh, authentication, that's where the client and server are authenticating each other based on their, their certificates, is that right? Right, exactly. So so a certificate is a a, a bunch of information about who you are and then also a a public key in a kind of signed thing that you give to the to the server you know you do client authentication so the server authenticates to you first with its certificate and then you authenticate back to the server with your certificate and you the difference between a token and a certificate is that when you present this certificate you also have to kind of sign something with a private key that only you have to kind of prove that you're the guy who who has this certificate so, so that's whereas tokens are what's 
you know, the original way you use tokens are what's called a bearer credential. So it's like cash. Like if you've got it, you can use it. Um, and uh, there's no other check done. So, you know, if you present that token to the API, then it's assumed that you got it legitimately. Uh, and so obviously there's a risk then that if somebody manages to steal that token, that they can use it just like you can. Um, and so there's various things you can do to kind of harden that up. But it's the kind of trade off then between adding more complexity to your to your systems. If you're just registering a token in a database, is there any sort of scalability issues as the number of users grow and as you're issuing tokens? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it, it depends on, you know, what technology you're using for your, your backend databases. You know, there's, there's some great databases now that scale really well, um, particularly in the cloud and things like that. Um, so you can actually get, so people are often quite quick to jump from from database back token to other forms that I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but actually, I, I would say you can get quite far with a database. So uh, don't assume that you're going to, and in, in many ways, putting stuff in the database is, is the most secure thing because it's really easy to revoke tokens then. You just delete the entry from the database. Um, so the alternative that people look at are, um, so self-contained tokens. So these are, um, so JSON web tokens is the, is the main standard people use. And this is a bit more like the certificate we were just talking about. So it's a bunch of JSON that says, you know, who the user is, maybe, you know, what roles they have when they logged in, things like this. Uh, and that then, that JSON is then signed with a, with a private key, uh, and encoded and that becomes the token. And so on your API, then all you have to do is verify the signature on this um, thing and, and, and that it was signed by your trusted authentication service. And then you can just unpack the JSON and you've got all the information there. So you're not having to make any kind of um, call out to a, to a database. So it's, um, it's a lot more scalable, that approach, um, uh, and potentially... Uh, it has different trade-offs. So uh, get, like I was saying, revocation is, is much harder now because this thing is just valid until it expires. Um, you obviously have to, if you're using time-based expiration, you have to have a, a reliable clock, which is something that's quite often forgotten, you know, that you, you've, you've got to be able to tell the time accurately. If this thing's supposed to expire in, in 20 minutes or whatever, you've got to be able to know when 20 minutes is up. And if your servers have wildly different ideas of what the current time is, that can cause problems. So so there's different trade-offs there. But yeah, generally speaking, most mature APIs after a certain point will will move towards these kind of, they're sometimes called stateless tokens or um, yeah, client-side tokens, things like this. I know there's always a lot of confusion between authentication and authorization. So maybe you can give us a rundown. How, how does OAuth 2 fit into all of this? Right. So, so the difference between uh, authentication and, and authorization is authentication is about, uh, as I said at the start, it's about who you are and, and proving who you are. Uh, and then authorization is about, given that I now know who you are, should you be allowed to do what you're trying to do? And OAuth is is kind of interesting. So OAuth is kind of like a standard approach to token-based authentication uh, in that you can, you stand up something called an OAuth2 authorization server and your users can go to that and log in and they'll get back a token, an access token, uh, which they can then use to access various APIs. Uh, and so OAuth2 is, is authentication in that regard, but it's not... Um, 
<laughs> it's not in other ways. So it's designed as a delegated authorization protocol. So, so when you're logging in at the OAuth service, what you're actually saying is uh, the bit of software that I'm using, my client, which might be like a mobile app or it might be a website I'm using uh, that's different from the website I'm trying to access, I'm going to authorize that that um, app or whatever to access my stuff on this other API, uh, but I'm going to limit the scope of what it can access. And so Auto has these these scopes which get attached to the token, which say what they're allowed, what you're allowed to access. So so maybe if you go back to like our email example, right? So Alice Alice has got a custom email app that she wants to use with her email server, and they're made by different people. And so she uses OAuth2 to kind of log in to her email service and then say, I want to give this app a token it can use to access my emails, but I want it to be like read-only access, say. So it can only only read, it can't write any emails. Um, and so that's the scope of the token. So, so that's the authorization aspect of OAuth2. So Alice is authorizing this app to access her stuff. So she is authenticating to the authorization server so the authorization server knows it's her, but then she's authorizing this app to access her stuff on her behalf. And then the app again gets this access token, which it uses to access the APIs. Um, and it, and it's kind of similar in a way because um, that access token will say who Alice was originally. That's in L2, that's known as the resource owner. So who originally authorized this? Uh, and the backend API is going to probably look at that at some point and say, well, which messages is this client trying to access? Is it trying to access Alice's messages or Bob's messages? I'm going to compare that to who originally authorized this token. Uh, so that's the authorization aspect. Yeah, and then it will also check these scopes and say, well, you know, if it's trying to write write an email and she only authorized read access, then I'm going to say no to that. Yeah, and of course there are lots of different OAuth flows as well right yeah <laughs> new ones added every day almost yeah. um, <laughs> so um right so so oauth2 uh, it, it it's it's a framework rather than a specific way of doing things and that has pros and cons it's very flexible but it does mean that everyone does things in a slightly different way um so um you get these yeah these grant flows which which kind of um are how you how Alice kind of um uh, proves who she is to the authorization server and then also how the the token gets communicated to the client one of the very simplest one is the resource owner password credentials grant which is now being deprecated and shouldn't be used where Alice just literally just sends a message posts a message to the uh, or rather her client posts a message directly to the authorization server with Alice's username and password in it and gets back a token. So obviously the, the way that works in the terms of like, if you've got your mobile app, then what that means is your the mobile app is asking you for your username and password and you type it directly into the mobile app and then it goes and gets a token. Now, obviously that's like uh, completely insecure really, except for very trusted apps because um, obviously that app, you know, this, this idea of scopes and limiting what it can access to if you've given it your username and password, then it can ask for whatever scope it wants, right? Because um, it's got your your whole credentials then, um, and it's it's kind of can take over your account. So, so the more secure flow that that 
that people generally use in, in web applications is the authorization code flow, where um, uh, you you redirect the user to the authorization service, and the authorization service has its own web page where it will log in, Alice, take a username, password, two-factor authentication, whatever. And then it generates a short-lived authorization code, and that's really short-lived, like a few seconds, you know, 10 to 20 seconds. And it redirects back to the client, and the client then takes that authorization code and posts it back to the to an endpoint on the authorization server, um, and then the authorization server returns its access token from that from that endpoint, and that that's much more secure. Uh, but there's also like um, flows for specific circumstances. So there's there's a thing called like the old two device flow, which is useful for things like smart TVs and things like that, where you want to kind of link to your account but the TV doesn't have any kind of keyboard or anything. So you, you're not going to be able to type in your password directly on the TV, or you're going to have some horrendous, like, I mean, people do do this where you have this like little cursor and you have this on the screen keyboard and you have to like, which is horrendous for people like me who use password managers with like 30 character <laughs> random passwords and you're like spending forever. Uh, so there's a thing called the OAuth2 device flow. And if anyone listening to this is writing a smart TV, please go and find out about the OAuth2 device flow, where basically you you render like a QR code or something like that on the TV screen, which the user then scans on their mobile. Their mobile then, right, the mobile then loads their uh, the authorization server and they log in and authorize the smart TV to have access. And in the background, the smart TV is kind of, it's being given a code by the authorization server in the background and it's polling to see when when the user is finished. And then eventually, you know, the user approves it and then it gets back its access token on that on that back channel. Um, so it's kind of the security pros and cons with this, but it's, it's usability-wise, it's way, way better than this kind of using a cursor on your, on your screen. Look, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, we've been primarily talking about RESTful APIs. I'm just wondering, do these all these principles we've been talking about, do they uh, for RESTful APIs? Do they also apply to service-to-service based communication, say in a microservices-based architecture? Yeah, they do. The, the mechanisms you'd use might be the specific techniques you use might be different, but the the general principles um, are the same. Uh, so typically in the back end, um, it's kind of a different approach and there's, there's things you have to worry about that you don't have to worry about on the front end. So typically microservices are talking to each other using service accounts. So they're not using user accounts to connect to each other. You know, my microservice will have some kind of, well, assuming you have any kind of authentication between your microservices, which people often don't write at the start, but you, you should do. But so typically you'd have some kind of service account, which, you know, even in the simple case of like a traditional web application, you've got your application, your web server, and that's talking to a database and it's got some kind of database connection password. So it's a similar idea, you know, if you're talking between microservices Uh, and that service account connection password then is is highly privileged. So it can access any user's stuff. Um, And so you do have to be careful that that if somebody manages to find a way to make requests through through your API, through to the database or through to a backend microservice, that they can't then access stuff they shouldn't be allowed to access. And that's there's a whole class of vulnerabilities there called um, server side request forgery, uh, which is, again, a horrible acronym and hard to remember. Uh, 
a better way of remembering it is accidental web proxy. So you've got some service in your thing that's 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 accidentally it it provides a proxy interface that an attacker can send requests to it and it will send them off to like backend services in your internal network that you shouldn't be able to access. So. Uh, in, in the book, I, I actually in later chapters I give an example of this, which is like a service that checks that generates link previews. If you've got like a chat service, like you know Slack or something like that, you you, you paste a link into the into the chat, and it goes off and fetches that link and and renders a little box with a little summary and maybe an image or something of what that web page is. And to do that, it's making you know. There's different ways you can do that, but a common way is that your backend service is then just just taking these URLs and connecting to to that URL from your backend. But if your if your attacker then can then guess the URLs of like your internal services, like their IP addresses and things like that, then it can just feed your service URLs, which are you know your billing service or whatever, or your payroll service. And then your server just blindly connects to it and like, oh, yeah, here's a bunch of stuff. And I'm just going to render that into this little box, <clears throat> you know, so the, there's there's kind of all kinds of subtle problems around that. So you have to be really careful when you're particularly when you're back in services are, are processing URLs um, to make sure that you're you're validating those correctly. So many considerations that the, the, the book is called API Security in Action is published by Manning, uh, where it's honestly a central reading for anyone uh, uh, building APIs or have already published APIs for that matter. Uh, Neil, how can our listeners uh, follow you on social media? What channel should they be looking at? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter, or something else? Yeah, so so Twitter is where I'm I'm most active. So um, I have the handle Neil Mad Dog. Um, don't ask me why. There was <laughs> I joined Twitter late, and, and there was a lot of Neil Maddens on already. So uh, so Imagine yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so um so that that's where I primarily and I kind of tweet. I also have a blog which I kind of uh sort of infrequently update with with articles on things. That tends to be a lot more in depth. I'm also um at the moment launching a business. I haven't quite launched it yet where I'm going to be providing kind of security training courses so there'll be online training courses and some in-person ones. So uh if you keep an eye on Twitter I'll uh, uh, you'll be able to see that when that comes out. At Neil Mad Dog. Neil, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Hey, listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com, where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!